The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, everyone. And uh, as we begin this, I'm preaching actually on the Tuesday after the Sunday, uh, May the 19th, when this was shared with the congregation of White Ridge Baptist Church. We had a glitch in the recording. so, And I, I did share it uh, the morning that uh, regardless of your cultural or religious background, uh, we want you to know that you're welcome any Sunday at all to come and join us. I believe that that's how so many people are coming to understand and know more about Christ and about the Christian community. And so we welcome you. don't feel need obligated to participate in anything. Um, just come and join us as we seek to know God better. I was getting ready to come back from vacation, and as I often do, I listened to the sermons that I had missed, as were preached two weeks ago, uh, on the scripture that describes the seven churches of Revelation and, and, um, and, and talks about a, a powerful message of staying solid on the foundation that God has given us in Christ, and I appreciated Azar's uh, word of, of encouragement to be discerning as we live out our faith in this generation in Canada. And then last week, Pastor Doug shared and continued on in the Galatians series, and he talked about spiritual parenting from Galatians 4, that Paul saw his role as a spiritual mother to the Galatian churches, and uh, laboring to see Christ formed in each Christian. And uh, yesterday, as I was uh, sorry, last week as I was looking out my window, I saw some geese walking by with little goslings following them. And I thought, what a picture of nurturing that is. And uh, that's what we're called to do, is to, to, to nurture. And that's why I'm glad Doug connected that passage to our mission statement as a church, to nurture followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationship. And um, painted a picture of what that looks like as each one of us are involved in being spiritual midwives, helping to see God birth new people into his family. And uh, Doug shared about the idea of how exciting it would be if many of us would be baptizing people that we bring to the Lord um, in the ponds out front of our property. And if that doesn't appeal to you, that deacons are already looking into a a portable tank that we'll be using in this, in this room. Well, this morning, let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to be looking at verse 21 to begin with, to chapter 5, verse 1. So listen to God's Word as I read it. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. 
For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall never inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For Christ, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May God bless his word to us today. Amen. This sermon has a bit of a long runway, and I'm going to be sharing a couple of answers to a couple of questions before we get into the text. The first question I'd like to address is, what is the thrust of the Christian gospel according to Paul in Galatians? The second question is, what is legalism, and why is it opposed to the Christian gospel of grace? And then we'll get into the text. And the third question, what do Abraham's two sons have to teach us about the Christian message or gospel? And then finally, we'll end by looking at the application of what is the ultimate goal of the Christian gospel. So let's talk, first of all, what is the thrust of the message of Paul in Galatians? In his book, The Angels Were Silent, Max Lucado tells a story of an experience he had walking through the Miami airport one time, and a follower of an Eastern religion approached him, and she said she was a teacher, in, and, and that in honor of their school's anniversary, they were giving away a book which explains their philosophy of religion, an Eastern religion. She placed a copy in Max Lucado's hand and it had on the cover a guru cross-legged with uh, his hands folded and Max Lucado thanked her for the book and continued to walk along. But she chased after him and said, Sir, would you like to make a donation to our school? He said, No, thanks, but, but thank you for the book began to walk away. She followed him again and said, Sir, everyone so far has given a donation in appreciation for the gift. He replied, That's good, but I don't think I will. Thank you for the book. And he continued to walk a third time, and a third time she spoke again and said, somewhat agitated this time. She opened her purse and she showed him a collection of dollars and coins, and she said, Sir, if you were sincere in your gratitude, you would give a donation in appreciation. Lucado thought that was kind of a low shot, but he had the presence of mind to simply respond by saying, that may be true, but if you were sincere, you would not give me a gift and then ask me to pay for it. Indeed, you do not give a gift and then ask people to pay for it. And friends, that is at the heart of what Paul is teaching in the book of Galatians. He's uncovering a sneaky, very subtle and dangerous heresy that had surfaced in the early church. Essentially, there was a group of false teachers, Judaizers they were called, preaching that, yes, God gave the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. And that is what we are to believe in. But now, God wants us to pay for that somehow. God wants us to respond by contributing to that, that salvation by our good deeds, by our righteous living, by our conformity to the law, and in our own strength. 
Not quite in those terms, but that is exactly what they were teaching. You might be a Christian for a long time. You might know the, that salvation is the free gift of God. You might be able to quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works or payment, so that no one can boast. That's the point of grace, isn't it? All human boasting is excluded. And yet, you know, there's something about us humans that likes to pay our own way. Call it pride, self-sufficiency, independence. We carry this attitude into our relationship with God. It seeps in somehow, just like the water that seeps through the sandbags in a flood if they're not stacked and packed securely around the house that it's protecting. This works or performance orientation seeps its way in. Paying for something based on our own merit, our own effort, is a hard instinct to deny and change. (coughs) And yet our forgiveness is completely an act of love of the Father. Jonathan Edwards said, we contribute nothing toward our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And if that message of free grace and you have nothing to contribute rubs you the wrong way, then you need to ask yourself if you truly are a follower of the Jesus Christ of the Bible that said freely you have received, freely give. You are blessed in order to be a blessing. That is the thrust of the Christian gospel that Paul is emphasizing in Galatians. That, and if you can't, can't believe in this absolute, unconditional love by faith alone in it, then maybe you are a slave to other forces that are against God and against grace. You might be a slave to worldly sin, but you might also be a slave to religious sin. Either way, it could be that pride is blinding you to, to, the, to, the, to the message of receiving and you're living more as a slave than you, you are as a child of God. That's a lot of what Paul is talking about in Galatians. The second question I'd like to address is, what is legalism and why is it opposed to the Christian gospel of grace and love? Paul does not use the word legalism, but it is a good term that describes the philosophy of religion that the Judaizers were teaching in the Galatian churches. We shared several weeks ago that a legalist is someone who shares or has a legal list. And um, that's helpful because often we do see lists. Some churches put their legal lists right out on their signs. A friend of mine on Facebook was traveling in Florida recently and he posted a photo of a church that he drove by and um, posted the photo on Sunday. If you took a close look at this, underneath the photo of the church sign, you see in smaller print, big enough to read, it says, no hand clapping, no musical instruments, no baptizing babies, no women preaching. On the left post, it said, no divine healing. And on the right post, it said, come in and ask questions. I don't know about you, but that kind of a sign out front of a church does not invite me to want to go in and ask any questions. It clearly is showing that this church wants to be identified more with what they don't believe or practice than what they do believe and practice. And that's what legalism does. It emphasizes negative terms of righteousness 
more than positive terms. And I believe that's a complete misrepresentation of Jesus and what he wants himself to be known as in this world. And he wants his people to be known that way too. That God is a God of love. That God is a God of grace. And whether you like it or not, the people that are around you are forming opinions about Jesus based on the Jesus people they know, and you might be one of them. I met a man on the plane just this past week, and in the process of our conversation, we talked about the Holy Land, and I said, what matters is whether or not people believe Jesus Christ is alive or not today. And he was a little bit taken back by that statement. And, and, and I noticed that after that, he directed the conversation to how many people he knows from other religions that are good people. So I concluded that he obviously also is a legal list. He has a list of what makes person good. And I think that we all have those kinds of lists. Lest we become pharisaical and thank God that we're not like some churches down in Florida because we know better, I think we need to pause and take a look at our own legal lists. We need to dig deeper, because it doesn't always come off like a list. It actually is often a little harder to find. It's like digging down into something deeper in our heart's core values and beliefs. Legalism is essentially trying to even out the scales of injustice that exist between sinners and a holy God by what we do or by what we don't do. And we know that we're guilty, and we know that we, we, have, we have created ways of monitoring our righteousness. We know how we're doing on a daily-by-daily daily basis. The law is written on our hearts. Our conscience bears witness, and we don't want to live in debt to God. We feel guilty. We have often a, a deficit sense, an owing of God. We feel that we need to even the scales and appease Him. We are constantly evaluating our performance, our goodness, trying to validate or prove our righteousness before God. I know that it's not consciously happening in the mind. It's, it's subconscious, but we're hardwired with this wrong system of measuring righteousness. And if we're not careful, we return to it. I think we return to it in two ways. First, we return to it by being good. And then secondly, by being good at something. So am I a good person? Do I forgive when I'm offended? Am I kind to the undeserving? Do I have a giving lifestyle? Do I read my Bible and pray and go to church? Am I honest? Do I speak the truth? Am I good? Or at least better than the next person. And then am I good at some things? Do I sing or play an instrument? Do I do crafts or help fix things for people? Do I exercise leadership somewhere that helps other people? Am I serving other people's needs, not just my own? Am I good at something, or at least better than the next person? Now, don't get me wrong. These are all good things, and they should flow out of a genuine relationship with Jesus. But we must not do them thinking it changes His view of us or His love for us in any way. The problem, you see, with keeping a subconscious track of our performance is, is that it either leads to pride because you, you know instinctively that you're better than somebody else in morality or in righteousness, or it leads to self-loathing because you're not as good as somebody else around you. And what's going on down deep in our 
below our thoughts, down in our hearts, is you're concluding that God does not love you or favor you as much because you're not as good or as good at something as somebody else is around you. And you become more and more self-absorbed, thinking about your own self, or others-absorbed, thinking about those around you. But really, Jesus is not even factoring into your sense of righteousness, your sense of rightness with God, and your sense of being loved by the Father. And it takes years for these core beliefs about yourself to be torn down, strongholds, wrong ideas, wrong thinking, and the truth of God's love for you, unconditional love to be put in place and root and grow and bear fruit. Now we see in the Galatians what the fruit of legalism was all about. Remember, most of the Galatian believers that Paul is writing to had been idol worshipers and had lived an immoral lifestyle that went along with the false religions that they'd followed. And then they came to Christ when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to them. And, and they had this incredible forgiveness and love. But then, and then this group of Judaizers, these false teachers, came down from Jerusalem to Galatia. They went up to Galatia and they went and they started to say, oh, no, no, you, you need to obey the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey these laws. You, you can't just, it's not a free-for-all and so on. And they began to get clogged up. And they began to have legalism permeate the body of Christ. Now, I know it's not a, a very clean picture to, to paint for you, but a word picture <coughs> that might help us understand is that they needed this, these people needed a spiritual enema or ex lax. They, they had to get cleaned out of all the falsehood and the stuff that was bunging it up so that the solid food of God's Word could, that could, could get into them and stay in them and build them up. And that's the mess that Paul is in when he writes Galatians. And I think it's the mess that we find ourselves in too when we find a person and a neighbor in our neighborhood or someone at, at work that we might talk to about faith matters. And what we'll find often times is we get a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, 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 it, and it often has to be taken away in order to, to really build on the foundation of the true relationship of, of unconditional love and grace. As the hymn goes, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the message that Paul is preaching. Well, let's move on to the third uh, question and the real matter that addresses the text of Scripture in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And essentially, Paul is saying there's two ways of being related to Abraham. One the right way, one the wrong way. But what do Abraham's two sons have to teach us about the Christian gospel? Verse 22, Paul identifies Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And to understand this teaching, this, this message, we need to understand Genesis and the story of Abraham back there in Genesis 12 and following. In Genesis 15, God repeats to 
to Abraham the promise he'd made in chapter 12 that God is going to make Abraham into a great nation through his own offspring. And Abraham is to wait for the promised child. But in chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah take, they take matters into their own hands. They step outside of God's plan and they try to fulfill his promise in their own strength, in their own ability. Sarah suggests that Abraham sleeps with her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and that that's the way they will continue in, in having offspring. In fact, it says in the Bible that she gave her maidservant to Abraham to sleep with. Abraham went along with the plan, follows her advice, sleeps with Hagar. Hagar conceives a baby, and immediately disaster strikes Abraham's family. Right away, it says in the Scripture in chapter 16, verse 4 of Genesis, that Hagar looked with contempt upon her master Sarah. Sarah responds by blaming Abraham. Abraham says to her, do what you want with her. Sarah deals harshly with Hagar. Hagar runs away. God pursues Hagar, is merciful to her, and tells her to go back to her, to Sarah. And uh, while she gets back, she bears the son Ishmael, that is, son to Abraham. Ishmael, the name means God hears. God hears me. God had heard Hagar's prayer. Now in Genesis 17, many years later, 14 years later, when Abraham is 99 years old, God appears to him again and repeats the promise. I'm going I'm to bring about the promise of you being a nation because of the son that will come from you and Sarah. And in chapter 21, Isaac is born. His name means laughter because Sarah laughed when she thought of having his child in such an old age. Isaac is born and he grows up and he's weaned, but he's got an older brother named Ishmael who is 14 years older than him. And the Bible says that Ishmael laughed at Isaac and that the sense of it is a mocking kind of laugh, laughter, a bullying almost. Sarah goes to Abraham and tells him to cast out the slave woman and her son, for Ishmael will never share in the inheritance with Isaac. And though it grieved Abraham, God, uh, uh, sorry, Abraham follows through and sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And God tells Abraham that, that he's going to make Ishmael into a great nation. Chapter 21, verse 13. And indeed, that's what happens, as we know. Uh, Ishmael became the father of the Arab nations of the East. And that's why in Galatians 4.25 it says, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. Incidentally, I want to say that the prophet of Islam, Muhammad, traces his lineage, lineage back to Ishmael. But I want to clarify that Paul is not specifically referencing Islam in, in this scripture because Islam didn't come about until the 7th century after Christ. And so we need to be careful how we use the scriptures in this way. So now I want to go back to Galatians 4 with you. And with that background of the Abraham story, let's look at verse 24 where Paul writes that the story of these two women and their sons can be interpreted not just literally, but allegorically as a, a figurative understanding, an illustration. Hagar was a slave woman, Sarah was a free woman, and they represent two different covenants. One is according to the flesh, the other is according to the promise. Now the thing that's a bit disturbing about this is two things. Number one, 
is it's not the normal way of interpreting Scripture. Paul is not suggesting you can do this with any text you want and just have at her, because the normal way of understanding Scripture is the grammatical, historical, cultural, and literal understanding. What is the author's intent? And what is the, the hearer's understanding? And how do we derobe the Scripture from its cultural and, and dated time? And how do we re-robe it in the 21st century Canada so that we can make it relevant for our lives? But in this passage, what, what Paul is doing is he's, he's taking some figures from history and he's using them as a, as a metaphor, as an illustration. So that's one thing that's kind of disturbing. But the second part that can kind of mind-bend us is that, that Hagar in the story is an innocent victim, and yet she represents the negative part of the story, while Sarah, who is, is actually in unbelief when she acts with Abraham, She's actually representing something positive in the story. And so that also, if we don't follow Paul's logic, can get us off track. So what is Paul's argument? Paul's argument is that the covenant that Hagar represents is from Mount Sinai. It corresponds to Jerusalem. Sinai is where God gave the law. Jerusalem is a specifically targeting the Judaizers. That's what... Paul's reference to Jerusalem is doing those Judaizers who had gone to Galatia. And Paul is saying, if you follow their teaching, you will end up as slaves, just as Hagar, the slave woman, could only have a slave son. You will end up with an Ishmael-type faith if you continue to follow their teaching, which depends on you and on human merit instead of on God fulfilling His promise. Only God can fulfill His promise. Verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, which is referencing Abraham as well. You think about it this way. Abraham had two women in his household. There was one who was a beautiful, younger, fertile woman, and the other who was a barren and older woman. And what does God do? God chooses to save and pass on the family line through the barren one. What is God teaching? Except that God loves to shut us up to, to our own weakness and humility and loves to show Himself strong in the barren ones of this world. Verse 28, Paul clarifies, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. He even goes on in verse 29 to state that just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac as a bigger big brother and the half-brother, so today, those who are of Ishmael, the legalists, those who are trying to obey God in their own strength and think that they can please God somehow, they're going to persecute those who are depending completely on the unconditional love of God. Timothy Keller says it this way. He says the gospel of grace is always more threatening to religious people than non-religious people. And that's why, in many ways, religious people can be, in some ways, farther from God than the non-religious. Because religion can act as a slave enslavement that keeps us from the liberty that we were, we were made to live in, in Jesus. 
Paul says in verse 30, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Don't have anything to do with this, this kind of living. Wherever you find in your, in your core of your being this sense of, I need to do better, God's not pleased with me because of my performance, God must be very angry with me today because I'm not doing... Wherever you see that, cast it out, he's saying. The direct quote from Sarah speaking in Genesis 21 and verse 10. And so Paul is saying if you persist in following the have-tos of religion and legalism, it will not set you free. You will be enslaved because human merit cannot inherit the promise of God. Only God can fulfill His promise. Only by depending on God's promised Son will you experience His grace, His true fatherhood, intimacy with the Father. No man-made scheme, no self-effort is going to make you more presentable to your Father, to your God. God will fulfill that. And He has fulfilled that. He did it in Jesus Christ. And so Christians, children of God, live in the freedom. As verse 31 says, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So I ask you, do you have an Ishmael-type faith or an Isaac-type faith? How much of your faith is mixed with a sense of having to live up to a certain standard to be pleasing to God? How much is it depending on you? I want to go on now to the final question. What is the ultimate goal of the Christian Gospel? And we're going to unpack chapter 5 in the coming weeks. And, um, but, but Paul is driving, all four, first four chapters, Paul is driving toward chapter 5, verse 1, which is the theme verse of this entire Galatians series. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The ultimate goal of the Christian gospel is that the saved would not just know that they, what they are saved from, but, but what they are saved for. They were saved for freedom. And who they were saved for, they were saved for intimacy with God the Father, the living God, Jesus Himself. The goal of the gospel is that our lives would be transformed from being slaves to a drudgery, have-to religion into being men and women set free. That's why we've called this series Freedom, the True Nature, the Nature of True Religion. And working this and figuring this out takes time. I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to get what I know to be true down into the where, I, where I live my life. And that's the, that's the issue. Sometimes what we know isn't always what we actually really deeply believe. David Platt says it this way. He says, God has freed you from things to which you are still enslaved, and you have to work the gospel down deep in order to run in the freedom that is yours to run in. So you might know lots of truth in your head. You might have all kinds of, of knowledge and have a hard time living it out changing the way you respond in certain situations, 
the impulses like muscle memory that you respond to, you react with shame or guilt, self-loathing or pride, self-effort or independence, and you just have this natural instinctual reaction because even though you know in your head something is a certain way down deep, you're still somehow bent toward thinking God is not impressed with me today. God is more impressed with me today. God is watching my performance. God's love is not a constant. God's love is hot and cold according to my performance. That is so ingrained in us. You know, John Piper once said that we all know that the most common use of the mind is to justify ourselves. And when I think about that, I, I thought about how, how we see that begin in childhood. We see children seeking to justify their actions so early in life, making excuses, blaming others. Someone has said that every child is a little Pharisee in the making. But you know, folks, we must teach them. The children that God entrusts to our families, the children that God entrusts to our church and our ministries, we must teach them, we must model to them the, the, the ministry and gospel of grace, the message of the unconditional love of God. It's counterintuitive. But when they come up against the wall, when these little children come up against the wall of their own sin, of their own weakness, of their own shame, when they come up against the wall and they say, I can't be good, we need to give them grace. We need to model for them how it is that as they see us interact with each other in an environment of love and forgiveness and forbearance, they learn that that's the way God is. I don't know if it's a true story at all, but it illustrates a point. It comes from a book called Surprised by Grace by an author named Pullian Chivijan. I can't pronounce the last name. But the story is told of the days of the Civil War in the United States before slaves were set free in the South. And a man from the North went to a slave auction in the South. And after a, a, a long auction, a, a very high price was getting bid up, and, and finally he bought and purchased this young girl for quite a sum. And as they left the auction and began to walk, the long walk home, the man turned to the girl at one point and he said, you are free. She could not believe what she heard and she stared at his eyes and she said to him at one point, finally, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? And he said, yes, you are free to do whatever you want. And she stared at him again and she said, and, and you're saying that I am free to say whatever I want? And he said, yes, you are free to say whatever you want. And she said, also, and I'm free to go wherever I want. And he said, yes, you are free to go wherever you want. And then she stared at him a long time. And finally she said this. She said, then I want to go with you 
you know, many people think that the preaching of the unconditional love of God, the grace of the Gospel, that it's a dangerous thing. It's going to be abused. But you know something? I read the Bible, and God's Word, the Bible, teaches us over and over and over again that it is the only message that really sets sinners free. Every other message takes them out of one bondage and puts another bondage on them, puts another yoke of slavery upon them. But I believe that if, if as, as we mature, and it, it may take a long time, and yes, we do abuse the grace of God sometimes, but... But I believe that as we grow and as this message sinks down deeper and roots itself and gets planted and starts to bear fruit, I believe that what it ends up doing is it ends up making us into the kind of Christians that don't go to church or pray or do good things because we should or we have to or it's expected of us. But we respond because I want, I want to love Jesus back. Because He set me free. And I want to I wanna please Him because He's changing my affections. And I want to follow Him because He's the one that's worth following. Lord God, we thank You for this, Your Word. It is my prayer, Father, that You'll, you'll plant this message deeper in my heart that it'll get beyond my brain, down into my being, so that I'll respond the way I need to. And I pray for anyone that's listening to this message as well, that it will take them deeper into that place where your message transforms their lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.